Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, I think we've decanted for long enough. It's time to sit back and enjoy Two Sharp Reds with Mark Schwarzer and Ollie Geel. Yes, it certainly is that time of the week where myself, Ollie Geel, and Australia's third favourite son, Mark Schwarzer, we like to sit down, share a bottle of Burgundy Grape. We love our red wine here on the Two Sharp Reds. And then by the end of the episode, we like to compare it to a player, past or present. Mark, it's a big week. We've got anniversaries to talk about. You know, Normally during an international break, it's fairly quiet, but there's plenty to talk about. We also have a special guest, which will get you to do uh, the introduction. We know how much you like to do either both the introduction and the outro of the, the show, really. So we'll get to that uh, very, very shortly. But before we do, would you like to talk about the wine that you'll be tasting today? Yeah, I'd love to, mate. Um, I've gone, I've gone completely left field, mate, and I, I think I'm even going to surprise you. Okay. Yeah. So I've gone, and you probably don't even know they actually produce red wine. Right. Um, I've gone for an Austrian Pinot Noir. Yeah, I. No, that doesn't sound natural at all. <laughs> it's a, it's called a Kieselstein. Um, zwei Geld, and it's by Klaus uh, Presinger. Um, and funny enough, I tried this bottle of wine in, of all places, Amsterdam. My wife and I went for a weekend away, went to Amsterdam, and we came across this restaurant, which we walked past. It only had, I think it was three things on the menu, uh, out from a main menu for a starter. So each section had like three things you could pick from, and we stumbled across it. And apparently it's been going like for 15 years. We were very, very lucky to get a table at that particular moment in time. It was rammed. And it was unbelievable. And this bottle of wine was sensational. So good that I ended up buying like two cases from Austria. Uh, got back home, loved it so much. Went, yeah, I'm going to buy this. And it's a really, really nice drop of wine. Um, smooth, Pinot Noir, um, warm and really enjoyable. You are a citizen of the world. Only you could get an Austrian red in Amsterdam. <laughs> you just you, you, you live life to the fullest, which I absolutely love. Uh, I'll be trying a Chateau Le Borche, uh 2017. And the reason why I'm trying this one, Mark, is because it's a Uruguayan red. And as we know, oh. it's a, a big celebration uh, for all Australian football fans, an anniversary of a certain shootout, which I'm sure we'll get to very soon. So we'll, we'll talk about the wines a little bit later, but I thought it was appropriate to have a Uruguayan red wine. But Mark, it's that time that you've been waiting for. It's your special moment. So take a deep breath. Don't, you know, no stumbles. Uh, it's time to do your introduction of our special guest today. I'll try not to stumble, mate. But you know, sometimes I get a little bit nervous. Sometimes it gets the better of me. But this time I think I can, I can nail this one. So our guest today is um, a former Premier League player, played at Liverpool. So all you Liverpool fans in Australia, you'll be excited to hear who this player is. Um, I wonder if you can guess it in the meantime. Obviously, I'm going to let you know. But um, in my intro, I uh, played a number of times for Liverpool. I think it was 40 games between 2002, 2007. 
was involved in uh, quite a few of the games leading up to the, the victory in the Champions League of 2005. Unfortunately, wasn't involved in the squad on that day, but we won't talk about that too much just yet. Um, and uh, played for Blackburn Rovers, uh, Aston Villa, Leeds United, uh, Burton Albion and Bradford City, one of my first clubs in the U- Well, actually, my very first club in the UK that I played for. Uh, so that's pretty exciting as well. So it's none other than uh, Stephen Warner. Oh, you nearly said it. I know. You I nearly did. said See? Neil. The stumble. So There's a you stumble. stumbled. Do you know what, Mark? You're not the only person that does that. Everyone, I walk, hiya, Neil. How are you? Yeah. And I, I, and I just go, mate, I just else? shake my head and carry on walking. So, so the thing about that is, right, obviously you look nothing like Neil Warnock. But it's the name, thank, right? So, thank, thank, thankfully. Thank, thankfully. <laughs> are there any players that you get confused for? Does anybody ever call you another name of another player? No, just Neil. Just the manager, Neil. Neil. Really? All the time. And, wow. and everyone, you go, and you, you turn around, you go, Steve, and they go, oh, of course it is, of course it is. And you think, well, you didn't know. So, yeah. you want to no, get it, mixed it, up. Is that, it is that oh, it's easy. easy. It's an yeah, easy yeah. slip of the tongue. Um, well, I'll, I'll so let you, you want, know, right? Do you want to start the intro again, then? I think no, he no, should. No, no, no. Right. We don't normally no. let him do these sort of things. We're, no, we're introducing no, we're going him into it. this world. No, 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 we're going with it. We're going with oh, it. That's a, that's, oh, that's right, a done okay. deal. Yeah, I, I don't mind looking like an idiot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I used to get, I used to get uh, called all sorts of names. So when I was at uh, Middlesbrough, Gareth Southgate was a very common one. After a game, yeah. fans would come up to me and go, Gareth, can you sign this? And I'd be like, no. And they'd look at me like, how rude are you? That You don't even know who I am, so why am I going to sign that for you? Um, <laughs> when I was at Chelsea... So often I got called Petr Cech coming out of a game. After a game, obviously you're all in the same tracksuits and then Petr's got his, got his uh, protective headgear off. And so many times I got confused with, with Petr Cech. Um, so yeah, that, that happened quite a lot, a lot of times. Yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, the, ones, <laughs> the one that I used to see a lot was um, you get Igor Biscam and Neil Meller. So when they were at Liverpool, but then Meller would also get called... Gerard as well at times. Oh yeah, I can see that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was the same style haircut and things yeah. like that. So they they'd often get mixed up, and I think Mella loved that. Did, I think uh, he was made did, up thinking. Oh, did Gerard, Stephen yeah, Gerard get, ever get called Mella? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think he'd say it. <laughs> <laughs> That's Imagine not something that you tell everyone else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Stephen, I've got to ask straight away. Uh, get the the monkey off the back. Are you a wine fan at all? And you can be honest. I don't know how I got invited onto this show because, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not a wine fan. I'm a vodka drinker. Um, I'm pretty out the normal, if you like. I don't drink wine. I don't drink tea or coffee. Um, I drink vodka. And everyone like looks at me thinking, wow, you're strange, very strange. I'm hoping over time that my taste buds change. And once I hit 40, then I'm into wine. And then I'm a, I'll become a connoisseur. So do you only drink uh, vodka then? No other alcohol? Yeah, see, I don't like beer. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. I know. So, yeah, a bit, bit strange, aren't I? So, if you're just having a nice, like, yeah, to go to the pub, you will have a vodka and what? Uh, a vodka and lemonade. Vodka, vodka Sprite. Lemonade. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. But I like that. Go. It's yeah. a nice drink. Um, yeah. But I can, drink, I can drink that all day. It doesn't bother me. 
Okay. So, I'm, I'm, I'm paralytic at the end of the night. So <laughs> I can drink all. Yeah. So, so when you're drinking vodka, so say for this show, when, we, when we're trying different red wines and I've got a, you know, certain styles that I like and Mark likes certain styles, do you have favourite mixes or, or can you tell the difference between certain vodkas? No, to a certain degree you can. I like to try the different fruit, different flavoured ones. So I like the vanilla, the cherry, the lime. Uh, try and mix it up a little bit so you've got a little bit of variation. Um, pretty much like a red wine, I suppose. Yeah, Stephen, correct. thank you so much for, for coming on the, the show today. Plenty that we, we need to discuss. And I know Mark's uh, got, got a lot that he wants to, to get off his chest and ask you about. But one thing in particular with his intro that he you know, nailed you know, 99% of it, <laughs> uh, some of, the, some of the, the teams that, that he named that you've played for, you know, it's quite a list, a, a fantastic list that you must look back on now and go, you know, how great that I've been able to pull the shirt on for so many of these sides. But... One thing that I've always asked Marcus, you know, I, I've never been able to understand, obviously, because I've never played and I, I go for Arsenal. You know, I, I have that affiliation with the side. But when you look at the list of teams that you've played for and some of the shirts that you would have collected over the years, is there one in particular that you feel is your side? Yeah, it has to be Liverpool. I grew up uh, as a Liverpool fan. Uh, I used to stand on the cop when it was the standing cop. So my, my team is Liverpool. Um, I was fortunate enough to play for my boyhood team and which is something that many fans don't get the uh, the opportunity to do. So for me, walking out at Anfield is, is always a special occasion, even to go back and to be able to... I mean, recently I went on, on the tour with my nephew before we went back into lockdown. And it was quite interesting because um, we all had our masks on and we were going on the stadium tour and it was his birthday. So we're all walking around and um, no one had really recognised me. And then walked into, um, walked into the press room and they said, right, you can be Jurgen Klopp and you can sit behind the, the desk with the Liverpool background and you can have your photos taken. So I turned around to my nephew, Thomas, and I said, are you getting your photos taken? He's like, no, I don't want to. Well, well, I'll go up with you. Come on, me and you'll go up for a photo. So I took my mask off and I went and got a photo taken and everyone just turned around. What's he doing here? <laughs> they, they didn't realise it was me. But the funny thing was, the guy on the tour, uh, my brother's a Liverpool fan who's aptly named Neil, um, turned around and said, um, he, he turned around and said to, to me, brother, or to, to the crowd who were there, um, do we have any supporters from any other clubs? So my brother put his hand up and he said, yeah, I'm a blue. I'm an Everton fan. So the guy was like, all oh, right, are you? So he's talking to me and him with these masks on at the beginning. He says, so how come you don't support Everton? He didn't have a clue who I was. Then as soon as he saw me take my mask off, he was my best mate and he was like... Uh, so how are you keeping anyway, Steve? <laughs> you know, like he knew all along. He didn't have a clue. So, uh, but me, me nephew loved it. He was made up just to uh, to see the reaction of everyone. But going back to the question, yeah, Liverpool's Liverpool's my team and the one that I'll always have a, a strong connection with. I think from the different route of going into a club and and down my career, the club that I felt worked best for me um, and were and were sort of well, I cried when I left the club, was Blackburn. I just had such a family feeling about it and such a togetherness. And um, the way I was looked after, the way I was brought into the club was, was something that I'll never forget. But yeah, I, I actually cried the day I left there because of, because of the staff and the in infrastructure in and around the club. So you cried leaving Blackburn, but you didn't cry leaving Liverpool, even though you're a Liverpool fan. Yeah, because I knew it was the right decision. Um, for When you introduced me and said about the Champions League, been left out the squad. I felt massively let down. 
Um, I thought the way that my career was going at Liverpool wasn't great. Didn't feel like I was getting the respect that I put quite deserved. I thought I always felt like I was treated like a, a youngster still, even though I was 24 when I left the squad, uh, left the team. Um, I always felt like you were, I was just an academy graduate who was there. I didn't feel like I was part of the, the first team squad, if you like, and someone who was important to, to the team. And that was when I made the decision that I need to leave. But when I left Blackburn, it was a financial reason for the club to sell me. They needed to, to raise funds in order to sell the club to the Benkeys. So there was probably four, four or five of us uh, sold in order to, to balance the books. And as well, it was partly my choice as well that I wanted to go to Aston Villa, who were sort of pushing for the, the top four places. But that was, that was arguably one of the toughest decisions I've made in football. So was there, what, you know, talk, talk to us about, we, we hear it all the time about young players playing for their boyhood clubs, supporting the club, coming through the ranks. Was, did you feel extra pressure because it was your club? Because you're a local kid, did you feel pressure from the fans? Or was it a case of you found it a little bit easier because you felt they were right behind you all the time? Um, a little bit of both. Um, because I'm not a scouser. I'm not from Liverpool. I'm from like just the outskirts. My mum and dad are both scousers, both from like Bootle, which is bang in the middle of Liverpool, which is... Um, sort of quite a, a rough area to grow up in and my mum and dad are from there so they moved out into Ormskirk which is Lancashire so okay. I've never been seen as a, as a proper scouser I'm almost like a Michael Owen type Michael Owen was the same not seen as a proper scouser really because then, you're not born there even though your parent, both your parents are scousers you're still not yeah. then technically classed as a proper scouser yeah yeah it's exactly oh, wow. the way yeah so um so, because people only listen to the way you speak. Now, to you, I'll sound scouse, and people will go, but if you put me in front of a scouser from Bootle, they'll go, he's not from Liverpool. They'll know straight away because of the accent. Uh, I'll have a touch of it because of my parents growing up and yep. because I've played in the academy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, the pressure was always there to, to, uh, at Liverpool. When you turn up to the training ground, there's, there can be two, three hundred fans outside just waiting to see the players go into the car park, signing jerseys. Um, if you go to Melwood, which is obviously gone now that the, the team have left, there's fans standing on wheelie bins outside looking over the fences into it. They, they just want a piece of Liverpool. They want anything they can get. And when you are a young player coming through, I, I was the next in line, if you like, from Steven Gerrard. So Michael Owen had gone through. Then it was Gerrard. And then effectively, it was, it was me and the next in line to be the next big player at the academy. And I think if, if I had my time again, um, I had bad injuries when I was a youngster. I, they, don't, they didn't help, but I didn't let that be part of the excuse. I don't think I was strong enough mentally to deal with it. Um, if, if now you had the... If, if I was in the same situ situation now and we had the sports psychologists in place, uh, the the medical departments, the sports science, the way it is. I mean, I only found out at the age of thirty three that I had a dairy intolerance. I used to get I used to get sick on the pitch after sixty minutes all the time. I cramp up, and I remember uh, the assistant manager at Liverpool saying, "You're simply not fit enough." And I think they thought I'd never get to that fitness. But it was all oh, I know now. It was always the intolerance holding me back. And I think if I'd have got that right. And I got the, the mental side of it right, which I got right when I moved to Blackburn and, and Aston Villa. 
I think I'd have stayed at Liverpool for a long time. How do they treat you when, when you're sort of, you know, a kid, you know, going through that, you know, process of, you know, growing up and how do they physically treat you in terms of, you know, outside of that at school when you're talking to the careers counsellor and you go, well, what would you like to do? And you go, I want to be Wolverine. You know, I want to be an actor. I want to be, I want to be a spaceman. <laughs> yeah, they kind of go, oh, that's great. But, you know, have you thought about being a builder? Do they sort of treat you like that? Do they, or do they push you that saying, you know, yeah, 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 you definitely can break into the first team one day? Or do they sort of prepare you for maybe not doing that? I mean, when you're in school and they know that you're, you're playing for Liverpool anyway and you're, you're at that level, they see you week in, week out and they think, well, we've got to help him. We've got to help push him to, to try and make or achieve his goal, if you like. And I think the more success you had. So when I was in school, I played for the England schoolboys. So then they, they believe it a little bit more. They think, well, this could, could be the real deal. Um, when you go into the academy, and academies are often built around two or three players in an age group. So they'll have 15, 20 players, but they know only one or two might actually progress. And I always knew I was on the edge of that. I knew I had enough ability. There was always players with more ability than me, but I knew I had the work ethic and the, the desire to, to be the best and want to, be, want to make it. So I think people see that as well and want to push you and want to help you. Um, when you step into the first team environment and they hear what you've gone through. So I had three leg breaks from the age of 15 to 19. And they look at that and they want you to succeed. They want to help you. They want you to achieve your goal because they realise that the difficulties you've had to get to that, to that stage. So um, I think it depends how good you are, I think, and depends how much you're desperate to learn desperate to ask questions, to, to absorb as much as you can from other people. And they, they know how serious you are about it then. Yeah, what a difference that is. See, when I grew up at school, went to the careers advisor and they said, right, what do you want to do with your life? I said, I want to be a professional footballer. They looked at me and laughed and went, no, come on, what do you really want to do with yourself? And here you are at Liverpool going, and they're going, yeah, yeah well, they can see it, which two different worlds. Um, I want to talk about, you, you referred to it a little bit uh, before, about that time at Liverpool when you knew your time was up. The Champions League season, 2005, or four, 2005, the comeback in Istanbul. Um, firstly, tell us the day before. Well, it was actually, it was two days before. So, the, as you know, the, the end of the Premier League season finishes and then you have a gap of roughly two weeks until the Champions League final in and around that, that time. So, we, we were training um, for, the, for that two-week period at Melwood and Liverpool. And then the squad list was going up two days before and we were travelling out to Istanbul uh, for the game. The squad list went up, phoned mum, dad, obviously telling them, book your flights, get yourself to Istanbul, I'll sort the tickets, whatever you need. So everyone's like doing, doing that, booking the flights and whatever. Two hours, two hours later, I got a phone call from the assistant manager and um, he just said, listen, we've made a mistake on the list. You're not in the squad. So I was like, how can you make a mistake on the list during that season? And it was a three, th a three o'clock kickoff on a Saturday. And the day before the squad list had gone up and I wasn't on the squad list. So it was, you're in at sort of 11 a.m. in the morning to train with the rest of the lads who aren't playing and the reserve team squad. And then you attend the game. Okay, no problem. So I turn up, I go out that night because it was my friend's birthday. A few drinks, turn up for training the next morning. And the manager looks at me and I'm sat there with my training gear on, going out for training. And he goes, and this is Rafa Benitez, he goes, where are you going? So I said, I'm going out to train. He says, why? You're, you're starting today. So I said, no, I'm not. 
I said, I'm not on the squad list. I'm, I'm in the squad to train. So he said, no, 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 you're starting today. So I went to the squad list, showed him, name wasn't on it. And he went, well, you're starting. I was like, what do I do here? I made the decision. I went up to his office. I said, listen, I wasn't in the squad. I went out for a few drinks last night. There's no way I can perform at the level you want me to. So he turned around and said, well, you should have prepared for the game like you were in it anyway and whatever. And I said, that, that's understandable, but I'm telling you the truth now. So anyway, he, uh, he put me in the squad and he brought me on a sub after about 70 minutes. So this wasn't the first time that he'd left me out of a squad and made a mistake um, or vice versa. So when I got that news, I was, I was completely deflated, um, gutted. He didn't ring me, the manager, which I thought was a lack of courtesy, lack of professionalism. We got to Istanbul the day after the squad, uh, sorry, the day of the game. The players who weren't involved all flew out on the day uh, with their wives, partners and the partners of the players. I was gutted still because I thought I could have been part of this. And you think of the, the injury that happened and Steve, so at half-time, Jimmy Traore was meant to come off. He was the left-back in the game, Steve Finnan, then said he was injured. Traore stayed on the pitch and you just don't know what might have happened in the game, whether you might have come on and, and played a part in it. But anyway, I was just deflated after the game. Rafa not once apologised to me. So after the game, um, there's obviously the celebrations and everyone's in the changing room. That night, there's, um, there's, there's a party in the hotel. The next day, we're all due to fly back to Liverpool for the open-top bus tour. They didn't put the players all together on a plane. They separated them again. So the players of the, the team that played flew back with the wives and the girlfriends. The other players were put on a separate flight. So they all got back to Melwood, jumped on the bus, went on the City Liverpool talk, our, uh, tour. Our flight got delayed. We didn't even make the tour at the, uh, the bus wow. tour. So we didn't, I, I ended up getting home, sitting, putting Sky Sports News on, watching the tour, watching the open top bus tour around Liverpool. Wow. And I think it was the next season, like the, the next preseason, came in and uh, Rafa, Rafa apologised then. And I just said, it's too late. It's far too late. I said, that's not the way you, you go about your business. Um, I ended up being in a, a transfer with Lucas Neal from West Ham. Uh, he, well, he was coming from, from Blackburn to Liverpool and I was going from Liverpool to Blackburn. That was meant to happen in the summer. Uh, I got to Blackburn's training ground and uh, oh, I was on the way to Blackburn's training ground the last day of the transfer window and Lucas was coming to Liverpool. Lucas ended up going on a detour and went to West Ham. But West Ham, uh, Blackburn turned around and said, no, we still want you to come. On the way, get a phone call in the car. Liverpool have cancelled the deal. They want you back. They, they see you as part of their plans. Turned up the next day. I'm sat in the, tra the treatment room. I'm on like a, like a lazy boy type chair. And I'm just like sat back talking to the lad saying, yeah, the deal fell through. Um, Liverpool didn't want me to go. And they were like, okay, great, whatever. And then Rafa walks in and goes, what are you doing here? Thought you were oh, going to no. Blackburn. And he said, uh, why didn't I and the owner who made the call um, that they wanted me to stay because I was a, a local lad. They saw me as being part of the squad going forward. Um, but it wasn't the indication from the manager. So I literally walked out the changing room, went straight to my agent, rang him and told him, I said, get me out of here in January. And that was the July. And I just waited until I could leave. So were you involved at all during that period with the first team? Yeah, I played a few games. Um, I had uh, a hernia issue, so I probably missed um, a couple of months of the season. Uh, oh, uh, probably the, the first month or two of the season. Um, and then just towards the end of my career at Liverpool, I think it was around about 
December time, I picked up another hernia problem uh, on the other side. So I knew I was leaving at this point and I knew I had to be ready for January. So I went and got another hernia operation in uh, in Germany uh, from the same lady who did it, um, did the first one, got myself fit and ready for January. Unfortunately, got the deal done to uh, to Blackburn in that January. So there was no uh, no discussion with Rafa after you left or, or whilst you were leaving to, to thank him for his time at uh, Liverpool? No, because I, I literally, I mean, you know what, you know what transfers are like, Mark. You get a phone call, listen, tomorrow you're going to, to Blackburn and, and that's your lot and you don't even get the chance to say goodbye to people. You're just literally, you're gone. You're in the car. You sign for the club. Can you send me boots? Can you send whatever I need across? I'd already sort of been prepared for that. I'd, I'd been taking football boots home uh, slowly and just getting myself prepared for that. If I was to leave Liverpool, I was geared up, ready to go. But yet you still feel like you're a Liverpool fan after all of that? Yeah, because it's still my team. And what I've realised over the the last sort of... Since my time of leaving the club and since the new ownership's come in, they've got the, they've got the old ownership back. Players are welcomed back. They're talked about. They're, they're offered opportunities within the club. I now work for the, uh, the TV channel. I do a lot of work for them. Whenever I go to the academy, um, I can do coaching sessions. I can try and get my coaching badges from time with the academy players. So there's 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 opportunities there. They welcome the the ex players with open arms, and there's that there's that nice feel to the club. Um, when I was there, and then when they sold the club to Hicks and Gillette, that feeling just completely went. But since the new owners have come in, FSG, um, they've got that 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 feeling, that homely feeling, and that warmth again um, of being a fan, and I love it. So, Stephen, I want to ask you about your time at Aston Villa um, and also your thoughts on where they're at now because they're, they're an interesting club, aren't they, in the sense that you just feel like, you know, one thing in particular, um, you know, we like to talk about here on the show is the idea of the sleeping giant and where is it going to come from next? And we, we know about Leeds and, um, you know, what they could be capable of. But Aston Villa in particular right now, they're in a really sweet spot that we probably didn't think they would be in. You know, if we were to have this conversation you know, just after the last game, you know, of the last season, we'd probably be quite surprised as to where they are. But yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on, on Villa as a whole. Yeah, I think they've done incredibly well. Um, when you, you think of last season and the money that they ploughed into the club, I think it was like over 100 million on transfers. That was huge. Um, and the quality that they bought in wasn't great. Now, they, they changed the, the head of recruitment over the summer and they bought in a new, a new person to do that, to take on that role. But they give their manager a little bit more power as to the final say on players as well. And I think that's been key to everything that they've done. You think of the signing of Ross Barkley, the re-signing of, of Jack Grealish, if you like, for him to extend his, his deal to keep him at the club. Ollie Watkins. Now, when you, you think of £30 million on a player from the Championship, that's an awful lot of money. But he's repaid that with, with some important goals. He's, I think he's scored seven goals now, um, which is a good return for, for a player at Aston Villa. The signing of Martinez in goal has been key. I'm sure Mark will agree. It's someone that, for me, if I'm a manager, the one key position I always want to make sure is up. That you want to get the spine of the team right. But your goalkeeper, when I was at, at, at Aston Villa and at Blackburn, I played in front of Brad Friedel. Now, Brad would almost guarantee you 15 points a season, which is incredible for a goalkeeper. But that can, that can keep you in the league. Or it can mount you at a European place. And I think that's what they've done this year is, uh, with Aston Villa is they've bought a quality goalkeeper in, in Martinez who's capable of, of kicking them on our level. 
But with the investment that they have behind the scenes, it's almost similar to the time when I joined. They were throwing big money at the team. They had ambition to take it on. When I, when I joined from Blackburn, um, we had quite a significant sort of transfer window where they spent quite a lot of money, which was big money in those days. But we tried to, to kick, kick on and go into the top four. And we really felt we could do that. Um, we just fell short at that time, but the ambition was there. And I see that same ambition at the moment. Obviously, having a, a local manager in charge, a fan of the club as well. Um, he was under a little bit of pressure last year from, from fans, but now they've seen that he is a quality manager. I think one of the, the big improvements they've also made is he's added to his backroom staff and Craig Shakespeare, who won the Premier League with, with Leicester as an assistant manager, who's also been a manager at Leicester, has big experience working within the Premier League. I think he's been a huge addition to, uh, to Aston Villa as well. You, you can talk from experience about your time at Aston Villa. How, I mean, again, unless you're a Villa fan, um, unless you follow the Premier League uh, and, and the English game for a long, long time, I don't think a lot of people understand how big a club Villa is. Oh, it's, it's massive. I mean, they've won the European Cup. You, you think of teams that win the European Cup and you have to put them in that, uh, that bracket of being a, 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 a sort of a huge club. I, I don't know what the... It's, it's steeped in history. Whenever you go there, you, can, you get a feel for it. It's a hard place to play. Um, if things aren't going well, the fans can be, they can be tough to play in front of. I found that at times. I had a bit of a, a sticky spell there and it was relentless. It was tough to play in front of. You've got to have broad shoulders and take it, take it on the chin as well. Um, it can be a tough place to play, but when it rocks, wow, what a place to play. Um, and I, I, I'm just gutted for the fans this season and last season when they stayed up that they've not been able to see that at first hand. I went to Villa Park not too long ago um, and the, the atmosphere that I got in terms of, you know, there were no fans there, but in terms of the staff members, and obviously that probably changes quite often, but when you talked about your love of, of you know, leaving Blackburn and, and you get that really family atmosphere and lovely atmosphere, I got a really nice sense from Aston Villa in particular. And it changes from every stadium you go to, but it just felt like there were good people at that football club and it shows just how important that is. Yeah, I mean, that it is hugely important. You've got to feel at home when you go there because that is your workplace. You end up spending more time at the club, in the workplace and with the people that you're working with than you do with your own family. And you've got to enjoy the environment of going in every day. I, I enjoyed... The, the squad of players working with them. I enjoyed my first year working under Martin O'Neill, as difficult as that was. But then I had a really tough time at, at Aston Villa because they bought in Gerard Houllier, who was my old manager at Liverpool, who'd put me out on loan a couple of times, never really give me an opportunity. And I went from being an England international in November to two weeks later or three weeks later being put in the reserve team changing room at Aston Villa. And suddenly your, your love of a club or your affiliation of that club and that, that warmth suddenly disappears and it's very hard to turn that round. Uh, the next season, Alex McLeish came in and he was like a breath of fresh air for me, gave me an opportunity. I ended up taking over as the captain from Stillian Petrov when he got ill. And I thought, right, yeah, I'm enjoying my football again. Then the manager changes and Mark will know. It's so difficult. Managers have their own opinions on players. Sometimes they've made that opinion up before they even meet you. Uh, I was away on holiday, got a phone call off the chief executive. Manager doesn't want you, you can leave the club. I haven't even had the opportunity to show them what I can do. Um, and that was the, the difficult part for me. But 
whenever I go back, I mean, I, I went back a few weeks ago. I covered the uh, the Leeds uh, Aston Villa, uh, yeah, sorry, the Aston Villa Leeds game at, at, uh, at Villa Park, and just being in and around the staff was great. Speaking to them, how warmly received I was. It was it was nice to go back there and, and appreciate that. And that's the, another aspect of, of being a footballer um, that, again, is difficult to explain is when you, you're signed by a manager who rates you and then within a blink of an eye, like you said, you played for England and then Julio takes over and that's it. You're on the outer immediately. Um, the hardest thing, one of the hardest things as a footballer is to try and digest the fact that you're not even given an opportunity to prove that you're worthy enough to play, even though Julia, you'd worked under Julia before, but that was years before. So yeah. you've evolved as a player, you've matured, you believe you've gotten better, but they still don't give you a chance. And, and that, that's got to be one of the most difficult things to deal with, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's tough. I mean, I, I fell out with Julia for, for a, a number of reasons. Um, so I was, when I was at Aston Villa the first season, uh, Martin O'Neill, who was in charge, we'd often play a game on a Saturday. And he'd say, see you Thursday. That was the way he trained. He was old school. So I carried on living in the Northwest. And I just stayed over a few nights in Birmingham because we were never in training. So my family stayed in the Northwest. And I was probably in the Northwest more than I was in Birmingham when Martin O'Neill was manager. And that was just the way it was. And Martin was fine with it because he was like, nope, be with your family. Enjoy your time there. If that's the way it works, great. When Julier came in, he basically turned around and said, this is unacceptable. You need to move. And I said, okay, I'll move, but I need to wait until January. So when the kids move school, I can change them into school and what have you. Um, so he's like, right, okay. Well, whenever we play in the Northwest, you don't have to ask me if you can go home. Because you know what it's like, Mark. Players have to get on the bus to go back to the training ground or what have you to pick up the cars. He just said, you make your own way home because you're closer to home. I don't want you traveling back to Birmingham to go back to the Northwest. Yep. We played Manchester City away. Uh, we got beat 4-1. I scored, gave away a penalty on the day. wasn't my greatest game, um, but it wasn't anyone's greatest game. Few of the other players left after the game and didn't ask him. Um, but he'd pulled myself, Emil Heskey and Brad Friedel in because Brad and Emil were both living in Manchester as well and said, when you went uh, the same rule, Northwest, make your way home. A few of the other players just thought that was normal for everyone. So we came in on the Monday morning. He said, um, you all owe me an apology for not getting on the bus. So he sent Brad and Emil away. And I was stood there and I was thinking, why has he not sent me? So he says, you owe me an apology. So I said, no, I don't. I said, you pulled me, Brad and Emil, and said, if it's Northwest, you can go home. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. So I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, my God. So I said, well, you're lying. I said, do you want to get Brad and Emil back over? No, it's nothing to do with Brad and Emil. So straight away, I got my back up and he was like, you apologize to me now. And I was like, no. So went and trained. He said, okay, forget it. Went and trained. Next morning I came in and we had plaques on our, um, on our lockers with our name on and things like that. And I walked in the training room and um, one of the, the kit men was waiting for me. And he said, Warney, I hate to do this to you, mate. He says, you've got to go in the, under 20, uh, the, under, the reserve team changing room. I was like, what? And he said, yeah, the manager's told me this morning that you're no longer allowed in the first team changing room and you should change with the reserves. So I went, to, went and knocked on his door and I said, what's this all about? And he said, you didn't apologise yesterday. He says, you made a mistake. And that was it. Done. So to, to shed some light on, on what it's like within the, the four walls then, is that like the almost the ultimate 
insult to 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 go back oh. to the reserves? How, paint yeah. a picture for me. That's horrible. It's the worst feeling ever because you know you've got nothing to look forward to at the weekend. Um, you've got you feel like you're the black sheep of the club, if you like, and people have put cast a doubt on your character and the type of person you are. And that was the the issue that I had was. I then look like I've, I've caused problems and, and, and I'm a troublemaker, which I'm not. I've got, I'm not going to apologize for something that I haven't done. Um, I, I don't see why I should do that. And people will say, well, just be the bigger man and, and say that. Well, that goes both ways. Really, he should be the same as well and do that. Uh, there was many times where I asked to sit down and um, sit in a room with him and discuss going forward how this was going to play out. He didn't want to know. Um, so that was tough as well. So coming in every day to train and knowing that you're training with the reserves and you've got nothing to look forward to at the weekend, plus you're not in a transfer window, so you can't get out. Um, when it did come to the transfer window, which was roughly about a month later, Liverpool came in for me and I got uh, pulled to the side by Gary McAllister, who was uh, Julier's number two at the time. He said, listen, Kenny's been on the phone, Kenny Dalglish's manager. He wants you back at Liverpool. I think it's the best for all parties. But then I feel that there was, there was a part of Julier that thought, I'm not letting that happen. And they put a halt on the move and they put a big fee on my head for a low move and the move never happened. Uh, and it fell through, which was even harder to take because then I'm stuck in the club for the rest of the season. And I sat out the rest of the, the season in the reserves and came in to train. Some days they try and tra make me train on my own. Um, there was a couple of other players that ended up in the changing room with me, which was quite nice at the time for me because I had senior players. Um, but on the other hand, I got to train with uh, Jack Grealish every day and help him develop um, because he was sort of a 16, 17-year-old coming through the ranks and uh, seeing him at first hand every day and helping aid his development. That was the side that Kevin McDonald, who was the reserve team manager, almost said to me, right, make this your opportunity to help younger players and, and take something out of it positive. And surely you kicked him. I couldn't get near him. <laughs> Another one. <laughs> Another one. Yeah. yeah he, he, he just fell on the floor when I did, Mark. Uh, tell me, I, I, so how good is he? Like, I mean, you saw obviously firsthand very early on. Um, how good was he then? And, and how much has he improved? And do you, how far do you see him going? I think he's brilliant. I think he's, he's one, of the, one of the young kids. Uh, the only other youngster I've seen in that mould was, and uh, this is, you'll probably laugh at me when I say this, was Phil Jones. Now, Phil Jones, when he was at Blackburn, came to train with us as a 16-year-old. Centre-half, he was battering people left, right and centre, centre-forwards. Uh, centre and everyone sort of sat up and went, wow, who's this kid? And he ended up moving to Man United. And Phil's probably not gone on to do what he probably should have. And that's a harsh thing to say when you think of the honours that he's won. But he should have been a Man United great for years and sort of a legend at the club. But when I look at Jack, he's achieved everything that I thought he would achieve. Like as in the quality of player, making the first team, turning out for England now. But people don't give him credit for his, his footballing brain. Um, he is such a clever footballer. But he had that as a 16-year-old. He had that ability to, to take people on. He had that arrogance that you need to show people that he's a good player. He enjoys getting kicked. He'll get up. Um, that was part of my sort of training. Kevin McDonald would turn around to me and say, leave one in on Jack today. I want to see how he reacts. 
And that was wow. part of his, his growing up and his, his understanding. So as he, he'd leave the field, Kev, then Kev McDonald would go over and say, how did you find that against the senior players today? Because that's what you're going to come up against. It was character building. That was what that was sort of my role with Jack at the time was to to build him up and to get used to that. Because as a fullback, you don't want to wing a run that. You're going to take him down. You're going to leave a little bit on on him. You're going to be aggressive with him um, because the last thing you want is to get him squared up and running against you. So this was something that very early on in Jack's career he learned quickly and adapted his game. But he's a phenomenal talent. Um, for me, he's. It's hard to say this because he's, what, 26 years old. He's still England's best talent, I think. I think he's capable of turning games on, on its head within the blink of an eye. So has he secured his England spot for you? At the moment, yeah. Um, I think when you, you look at him playing against the Republic, and, Republic of Ireland and Wales, for me, that wasn't a challenge for Jack because he plays against mm. that week in, week out in the Premier League. Some of them players play championship football. He's done that at championship football. He's proven that he can do that at those levels. The big challenge was playing, uh, playing Belgium, number one ranked team in the world. Can you then do it against a team like that? And he did it. And he was, argued, well, for me, again, was the best player on the pitch. The player who the, the other players on the pitch were turning to to make something happen. And that's when you know that that player is respected within the setup of the team and how important he can be going forward. And I think, I think you, you saw that with the, the link-up play as well with him and Harry Kane. Uh, Gabby, uh, I spoke to Gabby at uh, uh, Bonga Hall uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was on something, another show completely. Sorry, Ollie. I, I do do other work. With other I wasn't aware I of that. But okay. <laughs> I, was, I was two-timing you. It's like a dagger um, to the heart, wasn't yeah, it? Oh, wow. I know. And, and, I, and I asked him the question um, about Grealish, the same question I asked you, and he was the same complimentary and saying how wonderful a player he is. And he said to me that he's the difference between Aston Villa staying up um, or getting relegated. Do you agree? Uh, I think he was last year. I think they've built on that this year with the additions they've made. But what I do think it does is it frees Jack up a a lot more. Because bringing Ross Barkley into the team, allowing McGinn to be more forward-thinking, now you're giving people more to think about within the setup, and I think that just gives Jack more space and more time on the ball, which is which is hard, which is sort of harder to play against. Will he be the difference? He, he possibly will. You look at his stats already so far, and he's the most goals and career assists in the in the Aston Villa team um, as a com- as a combination. So he's hugely influential for them. Um, is he the difference? I think we we wouldn't know until he drops out the team, and then you see whether Aston Villa drop off a lot. So, hang on, to fulfil that potential, does he have to leave Aston Villa to become like, what, like one of the best players in the plan- on the planet? Um, I mean, you always say you're going to have to join one of the big clubs, don't you, and prove it at the top level. You need to win trophies, Premier Leagues, Euro- European Cups to, to prove that. If Aston Villa have got ambition and they keep on bringing players in, what can they do over the next couple of years? No one knows. I think Jack's shown that he wants to be a one-club man. I think it means more to him to to be a successful captain at the club, to take the club forward, to be part of uh, a successful team. Will they win anything? They might win a trophy, uh, an FA Cup or a Carabao Cup along the way. And would that be enough to satisfy Jack? I think you always have to play at the elite level to prove that you're world-class. And that's Champions League football. But can Villa achieve that? We don't know possibly can with the, with the financial backing. 
The good thing is uh, Mark's mates have proven since 2016 that anything's possible in Premier League football. So let's fingers crossed for their sake. And, you know, from one big club to one big club to another in Leeds United, they really, you know, they really could do anything. And as you can imagine, for most Australians out there, there's an affiliation with the club, whether or not you, you support them or not. It's a different story. But, you know, most Aussies have always you know, had an eye on, on Leeds and, and it's fantastic to see them in the big flight. Um, a few questions, obviously, on them, but I'd love to get your thoughts on their defensive style at the moment. It's pretty unique, but do you think it's sustainable long-term or certainly from now until the end of the season? Uh, you'd have to say no, and you'd have to say no because of the speed and the, the ability of the players within the Premier League. The Championship going up to that, I mean, they, they always suffered from around about February onwards. And last year, they were in a way, fortunate that the pandemic came in because it gave them time to reset and it gave them time to have a break and then they came back out, out of lockdown and they looked fit and hungry again. This season, it's a, it's a big ask to do it in the, in the Premier League. Yes, there's less games, but again, the quality in the Premier League, you will get punished on the counter-attack and you'll get punished on the break. I think we're seeing that more so than ever. The, the managers, the players that you're going up against, more tactically astute when they go up against teams. They can, they can carry out game plans better than players in the championship. And that's not being disrespectful. That's just why they are Premier League players and, and they are top-class uh, top managers. So it's a big ask for them. I think they've got more than enough to, play, uh, to stay within the Premier League, though. Um, I think they're, they're definitely better than three other teams within the league and they'll, they'll more than comfortably stay up. That's another one of your sleeping giant clubs, wasn't it? Uh, Leeds United. What was that like to play from? Uh, do you know what? One of the, the, the best supported clubs I ever played for. Um, I, I remember going on my brother's stag do uh, to Portugal. <laughs> and um, it was in the close season. And I was going to, we were in Manchester and we were taking off. And I remember getting on the plane and this song just broke out of my name. So there used to be the uh, the Ya Ya Torre song, do you know Ya 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 Yeah. So they did that with me and Neil Warnock because Neil Warnock was the manager of Leeds at the time. <laughs> so they used to do the the Neil and Stephen Warnock song. So it broke out on the uh, on the on the plane going out there, and I was thinking, wow, this plane's full of Leeds fans. Got to the airport, landed in in, in uh, Portugal, and a flight had come in from Leeds, and another one had come in from Manchester. There must have been about 4,000 Leeds fans going on holiday to Portugal. And the whole airport was singing it. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I've come on holiday and I can't get away from them. Just the support that they have is phenomenal. And whether it was going to Ireland or going abroad, I always get people coming up to me now who are Leeds fans, love the club, steeped in history. Uh, it was an honour to, to say I've played for them, to captain them. I joined at the wrong time. I joined at the time when the club was going through uh, a change in ownership. So there was uh, a Dubai-based consortium who owned the club. They were meant to be getting bought out. I think that one fell through. And then the dreaded Massimo Cellino era uh, came into place where the Italian owner came in, basically stripped back the club, made us bring in pat lunches, made us buy our own socks to train. Um, everything was just cut back at the club. It was a disastrous time. For, um, for about a year and a half, well, a year, year and a half at the club. And now, again, I see a, pro, a like a, a sort of a, a change in the way that the club is. 
I love going back to the club again. It's almost like the feel of Liverpool. They've got the right owners in charge. They've got that family feel about it again. You're always welcome back with open arms. Um, everything in and around the, the stadium's changed. There's that feeling that a football club should be, a togetherness. And um, I, I love going back there. I'm going back uh, at the weekend to, uh, to cover the Leeds and Arsenal game. I can't wait to go back. Um, and that's the way it should be when you go back to your former clubs. Uh, Michael Bridges said exactly the same thing. You know, remember Michael Bridges? Uh, you probably yeah, don't yeah. remember him. He played like five games in the Premier League. He was always injured. He worked he for right. the sport. He, he was all he did right. Okay. Yeah. You're one of the very few people that actually remembers him because not many people actually know him. But anyway, he works with us at Optus Sport <laughs> back in Australia. And he says the yeah. same thing about Leeds United, that it's changed a lot. And it's a real uh, friendly uh, club now. And it's like it should be, welcoming players back to the club. Yeah, it's, it's got to be that way. And I think um, you've got to get that connection now. I mean, obviously, stuff like this, doing podcasts, doing um, interaction on social media... You get an interaction now where fans get to know players a little bit more. They get to know ex-players. They want to know what, what they're about, how they are, personalities. And I think Leeds have incorporated that all in, uh, in, into the club and the way that they act as well. They bring former players back to speak at, at the club. And um, obviously, it's difficult at the moment. But again, that, that passion to drive Leeds forward. I think the owner who's come in and, and obviously had investment as well from other parties from America... But they see the potential of Leeds and what it's about. That is one of the biggest sleeping giants you'll, you'll ever come across. The fan base is phenomenal. And uh, there's not much like a roar when you walk out on Ellen Road as well. So put your, um, put your Liverpool hat back on again. Liverpool fan, obviously you're in the media uh, side of things. You work for the club. Could it, have be, could it have been a worse weekend for Liverpool in terms of injuries? I mean, they've already had a horrendous injury list. And then you add to the fact that, what is it, Robertson, Henderson, Gomez, Salah, all back, all on the injury list as well. Yeah, uh, it's tough, isn't it? Really tough. I mean, I look at the, the, the Mohamed Salah one and I think it's, it, I take this, it's hard to say this, but I almost take it as a blessing in disguise that he's got a break. Um, obviously, I don't want him to be ill from COVID and hopefully everything's fine with him. I think he's, he's come out and posted that he's, he's feeling well and everything's fine. So he almost gets a, a little bit of a break, which he's not going to get in the future. Liverpool now have squad depth up front that they can deal with that. We saw the performance of Shaqiri. We've seen the performances of uh, Minamino coming in. Then you've got Jota, who's forced his way into that forward thinking line. So they're equipped up front to deal with that. Henderson in midfield, if Thiago comes back in, then Fabinho should be fit as well. Then that's not too much of an issue. Trent Alexander-Arnold gets injured. Do you think James Milner can go into that right-back position? Then Hender uh, Robertson picks up a slight knock. Who then comes into left-back? Because uh, the new signing, um, Simicus, is slightly injured at the moment. Will he be fit enough to come in? These are all dilemmas that Jurgen Klopp will just be thinking, what is going on? This is such a tough time at the moment to deal with it. I, I've said this a, a couple of times already this season. Whoever wins the Premier League this season will have dealt with this situation the best. He'll have rotated his players the best. He'll have dealt with injuries the best. He won't necessarily have the best team. Um, so are you a three-man substitution or a five-man substitution fan? I, I think five. Uh, and I don't, I don't say that lightly because... I understand both sides of the, the argument. I understand the smaller clubs will feel that the, the, the bigger teams have an advantage with the more quality coming off the bench. But as we're seeing, 
players are dropping like flies, then that quality drops. So they don't have that quality coming off the bench now. They also have the, the fixture congestion of travelling around Europe. You've been there, Mark. You know how tough it is coming back from them away games and how fatigued you can feel uh, coming back from them. You can almost have a jet lag feeling coming back. And there is games where you think, I can probably get through 60 minutes today. But then after 60 minutes, I'm probably going to be flagging and I need to, I need to, be, to be taken off and someone coming on with, with fresh legs who can, who can take over. And I think that's where the balance needs to be right. But I do see the argument from, from, both, sets of, or from, from both sides of the, the three subs and five subs rule that season. Stephen, before we wrap things up with you, mate, we really, we really appreciate your time here on the Two Sharp Reds. We've spoken about you know, the, the depth of Liverpool's injuries. We know Man City's inconsistencies this year. So if we were to pick you up and put you on the spot, where's this season going to head? Because you're getting that sense that it really could go anywhere. Uh, it, it could. Um, I mean, this is like a, a season that you'll never be able to call again. It's, you don't get a home advantage. You don't get a way advantage. It's just everything has just completely gone out the window. Um, again, talk about managers managing the situation. I still feel Liverpool are the team to beat though. And that's, that's in, it's still, I look at it and think if they can get through December and get themselves to the January transfer window and they can bring in a centre-back, I still think they'll win the league. I think they're, they're, they're that good a team, that they're that capable of winning it um, with the firepower that they've got up front and the quality that they've got in the field. I still feel it's Liverpool's. So all I'm going to say is I'm going to get it absolutely right this time, Stephen. Thank you very much for, for, joining, <laughs> for joining us on the, on the Two Sharp Reds podcast. Absolutely brilliant. Really enjoyed your conversation and great stories. Um, had a fantastic career. And uh, listen, I, I listen to your stuff. I've done some work with you. I've uh, seen you along the, around, the, around the games and Champions League football. Um, and it's always great to catch up. And thank you again, once again, for, for coming on the show. It's been brilliant. Cheers, guys. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Won't be long. Back to Ollie and Mark in just 15 seconds. If you enjoy Two Sharp Reds, though, make sure you search Geg and Pod wherever you get your podcasts. David Weiner is joined by thousands of games of experience both on and off the field. It's a great listen. G-E-G-E-N-P-O-D. The Geg and Pod. Okay, back to Two Sharp Reds. Mark, uh, we mentioned it at the start of the episode. Big week for, for you and I. Big week for all Australians. Uh, it's it's anniversary time. I'm not talking about our anniversary. We've already covered that off so far a few episodes ago. 15th, anniversary, 15th year anniversary of that shootout in 2005 against Uruguay. I'm celebrating with the, the Uruguayan Red. And, you know, 15 years ago, I'd just woken up 3 a.m. as a you know, kid and I was in grade five. Dad and I were making our World Cup eggs where we'd get the frying pan and pour... You know, we'll like crack an egg, eggs to, to you know, sort of replicate the, the uh, football. Uh, Mum was at work, but she was watching it. It was it was an amazing time to be in Australia. Well, I mean, I was in Tasmania, but that still counts. But to be in Australia. <laughs> well, you said it, it yourself. Was, uh, you you yeah. said it yourself. Yeah, I was uh, just Tasmania looking at you. I could tell. Actually, well, oh, oh, I mean, Tasmania. Uh, I could just see your Australia. face. Uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was an amazing moment, but it's... Uh, it's probably time that we just take our hats off and go, mate, it doesn't get old. It really doesn't. What a, what a massive moment for, for our country. Yeah, it, it doesn't get old. It certainly doesn't. You know, like, obviously, social media is, like, it's just flooded with, with videos, memories, um, people's comments on that from, from that day 15 years ago to this very day, which is 
uh, again, I, I have to pinch myself still. Um, and, and then when I see the video footage, the hairs on the back of my neck step, I stand up and there's this real tingle that goes through your body. And I, it just has never stopped um, every time I see footage of it and any time we ever talk about it. Um, uh, there was a couple of posts on, on, uh, on Twitter and I, I was tempted because it said like, where were you on this day? And I was tempted on a couple of occasions to just add a little bit of where I actually was on that day. Oh, you've <laughs> got to no, do it. Come on. No, no, you've got to do it. No, I just thought that, no, maybe sounds a little bit arrogant. Sounds a bit, I don't know, big, big time. So I just, I haven't, I've, 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 uh, refrained myself from, from adding anything to it. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's very special, isn't it? It's, um, yeah. it was a moment that reshaped, um, the, the path of Australian football. And, and, and uh, however, how, wherever we think football may be in Australia right this moment in time, um, you know, let's not forget that we've qualified um, for, what is it now, four World Cups in a row, yeah. um, which is pretty amazing since, you know, 32 years was the wait between the first one and the second one in 2006. Um, and we are still to this date the first and only team only country to have qualified for a World Cup via a penalty shootout, which, you know, is that right? Too bad either. I yes. didn't know that. That's amazing. There you go. Yeah. And what a shootout it was. It had everything. And, you know, I watched it, you know, this morning when I woke up, because as he said, it's just sort of flooding social media at the moment. Your second save in particular was one of the be- best saves I've seen. You, I was looking at <laughs> it, thinking, thinking, you've not left your line. The ball was slightly behind you, it was quite high up. It, it kind of had everything. I mean, do goalkeepers come up to you and actually congratulate you on, on not just the save, you know, because I assume most people were congratulating you on the saves, but technically I thought it was incredible. Uh, no, no, not really. Um, it, it was You're more about the moment. You? You're embarrassed. No, it was more, it's more about the moment and, you know, were they the best? No, they weren't the best saves ever. It, it's more about... The, the actual moment and, and the meaning of the saves than anything else and the pressure that went along with it all and everyone playing their part from obviously all the players, the staff, everyone involved, directly involved, but also the scene was set um, for that very evening. I mean, you know, you could argue and say, well, the scene was set every four years in Australia and every four years we generally went away heartbroken. And, and that's very true. So every, every time we got to this stage of World Cup qualification, the scene was set. It just so happened that we were able to take it that one step further. Um, and, and looking at it, you know, it was the, it was the time, uh, the last time we had to qualify through the, the, the really difficult path of, um, firstly, winning Oceania, then and 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 then you know playing off against South America. Yes, you can still do the same thing now you, through Asia, but I think it's a fairer way of trying to qualify now through Asia for for Australia, because you can win the group uh, at the final stages and then you qualify directly. As we all know, you can finish second and you qualify directly. Whereas you win Oceania, you never qualify directly. And we did for six months, but there was no qualifiers and no World Cup on. So then they changed it again that Oceania only, only had half a place, which, which I, I have to agree with. I think it's a fair enough thing. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's for so many reasons. The fact that we played Uruguay again uh, four years after the experiences that we, we had in Uruguay, how we were badly treated. And then again, you know, 
it's it's South American football, and and, and that's another thing. I, I I take a lot a lot of pleasure out of the fact that and and gratitude that I was able to play in a World Cup qualifier in South America. I, I had my first experience of it back in '93 uh, when when I was first involved with the national team, and I was on the bench for the second leg against Argentina in Buenos Aires. So I got a taste of what it was like to play a World Cup qualifier in in, in a South American country, but the the response from the Argentinians was very very different, and I think that was because they just they just knew they were going to be this. I don't think they ever thought us as a genuine threat, even though the score was one one in Sydney and we only lost one nil in, in in Buenos Aires. There wasn't the hostility of being in Argentina like there was when we went to Uruguay. So it was a very very different feel about it. So. Fast forward the the you know the, the time to 2001. Firstly, the the immense hostility that went towards us. That was our my first real experience of the cutthroat nature of of, of playing a World Cup qualifier in that part of the world. And I look back at it, you know, with with uh, incredible amounts of pride and and excitement, and so glad I got to experience it. Even though that first time round was really disappointing in the end it still put us in such a better position four years later and, and everything fell into place. The Federation learnt uh, not to go there too early, not to spend any time as, as little time as possible in Uruguay before the game. And after the game, we flew out straight away. The pathway to get back out of Uruguay was a direct one. Uruguay had to go via, I think Miami or something like that, you know, everything aligned. Um, And finally we aligned on the football pitch and did enough to get us over the line against a side that, I'll say it like I probably said it every year whenever I ask this question about, about the qualifiers, the team that believed that they and players and a country who believed that they had the divine right to qualify for a World Cup. Um, and as we all know, nobody has that divine right. You have to earn it. So many reasons why you wouldn't want to change the, the script of the, the entire, you know, as he said there, the build up, the history. One thing, though, that I'm sure most people would, would want to change is the fact that it was heartbreaking every time I watch it back, seeing from one mark to another, you know, one mark had a great time in that shootout and, and the other mark didn't, didn't have a massively great experience in Dukes missing that penalty. And, and I just feel bad because he's had so many wonderful moments for the national side and so many great moments for club. But that is a shootout that will, as you've seen 15 years on, that will probably be continued to be played, you know, this time every year. And it's, it's such a shame that he, he didn't, you know, get the back of the net and, and to have that moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, listen, that would have changed the course of history because Duke's scoring, um, I then saved the next one and the, well, the, the shootout would have been finished and John Elowissi wouldn't have had his moment, you know? True. Yes. Um, <laughs> It all happens for a reason. And you know what? For Dukes to miss and us to still qualify, it's irrelevant. If Dukes misses and we don't qualify, then obviously it becomes a big story. But it's, it's, it's minor. And everybody knows what a wonderful player Dukes was. Um, and, and that's just a, not even a blip. It's just something that happened, missed it, but we scored. And, uh, sorry, we, we qualified. And it's irrelevant it's just part of the whole story of the way it unfolded. And um, I suppose it made it that little bit more dramatic. Well, I must say a big cheers to you, a big toast as we raise our, our glasses of red. Uh, we've had very different experiences of that game and many, as you could probably imagine, but nonetheless, very special for all of us in their, in their different ways. So congratulations and happy anniversary, Mark. Thank you very much, man.
So in celebration of that shootout, I did go for a you you were easy for some. You were Guayan, Uruguayan red in the Chateau La Gorche, two thousand and seventeen. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed my Chateau La Gorche. I'm really struggling with my pronunciation today. You just when you try and be a little bit sophisticated, you get unstuck and. Maybe I should just stick with the 19 Crimes Australian bottle of red. Well, that, that's pretty but, simple for you, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it rolls off the tongue pretty well. But, oh, look, I've really enjoyed my Chateau. Uh, intense black fruits with robust and supple tannins with a nice spiced oak. Um, have you noticed that spice has been a really sort of common theme over the last few bottles that we've had, whether it be white pepper, black pepper, bit, just spices in general, um, I think has been a bit of a common thread. Uh, I don't know if there's been any correlation as, you know, as to why, but it has. Um, and I've been really thoroughly enjoying that. Um, some of the aromas in particular, it, uh, cause I'm going to be pretty, pretty short and sweet here in comparing this wine to a player. It's really the aromas that, that sum it up. We're talking um, ripe black currant, warm plum, smokiness. And you get, this is the best one. Pencil shavings. <laughs> so I uh, bet you I bet yeah. you can taste that. Yeah, oh big time. I'm going right back to grade two um before I got my pen license at school. So with all that in mind, um that the pencil shavings was the big one. I thought, right, this is a guy who when he was in the Premier League constantly writing and I should just say straight away that I'm referring to this person more as a manager rather than as a player. Um Okay. Constantly writing, uh, pretty intense, which, which, you know, they talk about the intense fruits uh, that are in this wine. But uh, the, the main one is the smokiness. It's, it's the common thread throughout the, 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 uh, the manager and the wine. Um, and it's, it's sari, you know. I, I think that's, it just felt normal. You know, it was intense pencil shavings. Which, so I reckon if you were to walk in the Chelsea changing room at that time, it would have been pencil shavings and, uh, and smoke. I think they're the, the main aromas that you'd probably get. So for that, I'm going to compare my Uruguayan red to Sari. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, that's pretty good. I, I think pretty sensible. Um, I, I went to a couple of Chelsea matches when Sari was involved as manager. And yes, there is a strong, strong aroma of smoke around that. Is there really? Uh, tunnel which is just astounding in today's <laughs> world of football anyway moving right along um yep. i've gone with an austrian uh red wine it's a 2015 Kiesenstein. Uh it's a beautiful effort from klaus Priesinger. it's elegant red immediately opens with pretty aromas raspberries and wild berries followed by fresh violets white pepper and wet stones all soaring from the glass on the palate, this is a medium-bodied and silked with wonderful balance and finesse, with a focus which is focused around a vibrant core, keeping this bright and lively through the finish. Love it a lot. So for me, once the minute I read that, and there was a couple of words that, that really stuck out for me, jumped out at me, was balance, finesse, and then uh, the vibrant core, keeping this bright and lively through to the finish. And there's one player that, you know, just from the weekend alone and also through his performances at times last season, but more so this season so far has very much been that um, wonderful balance, incredible finesse. 
um, you know, he's, he's been bright and lively all the way through every game he's played and particularly uh, yesterday playing for England against Belgium. And we talked about him earlier on. Stephen Warnock mentioned him, um, big fan of his. He did kick him a few times, which we found out in the end at training when he was training, when he was banished to the reserve grade uh, change rooms and had to come up against uh, none other than Jack Grealish. Uh, he was so good, wasn't he, for England yesterday? Oh, that it flick in particular. I think he sort of did it twice, but there was his first flick and turn, almost Dennis Burkamp-esque. He was, yeah. He's just come into his own, hasn't he? Yeah. The only thing I'd say is, right, has he not got the biggest calves you've seen in a long, long time? Well, I've got a mirror at home, Mark, and I'd have to say <laughs> that... Uh, I don't want to say people have compared me to Jack Grealish before, but there's certain similarities. That's, you know, that's all I'll say. That's all I'll say. Wow. Well, I'm a dancer. Wow. You know, there's uh, the calves there. You know, they're strong. That's all I'm getting okay. at. Let's just leave it at that, okay? I, th- I think that we've got a lot of similarities. You know, same height, good hair, last name start with a G. <laughs> the list goes on. Um, okay, right then. So let's <laughs> move right along now. And uh, I, think that's a great way to end. Yeah. I think it's a great way to end the show. Uh, first and foremost, I'd like to thank uh, Stephen Warnock, Uh, Yes, I've got it right again. Thank goodness, because that was rather embarrassing. After hyping myself up to say, like, I'm going to nail this, uh, I almost, almost, well, I pretty much did call him Neil, didn't I? Uh, But yeah, Stephen Warnock was brilliant. Um, I said it when we were interviewing him towards the end uh, of the interview as well, that he is a really good guy, knows his stuff. Obviously, he has played with a lot of clubs, is a massive Liverpool fan experiences uh, at Liverpool, particularly that 2005 Champions League final was, was really, really interesting and eye-opening. Um, and uh, I thought it was a wonderful guest, really enjoyed having a chat with him. And I do get to see him a lot, particularly around Champions League football. Um, and he's a good character to be with. And the only thing I'd have to say, the one dodgy bit about him is he doesn't like red wine and he drinks vodka and lemonade. What is that? But anyway... Thank you very much, Stephen, for coming on today. It was absolutely brilliant. And uh, Ollie, you weren't so bad yourself. Um, Thanks, I thought the best moments were when you just sat back and listened. They were probably yep. my highlights from your performance yep. today. Uh, I thought that was great. So well done. Keep it up. Which and, will translate um, well into the episode for, for people listening as well. You know, they'll absolutely. be able to notice that bit. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah thanks a lot mate and uh, I look forward to catching up again next week and uh, listen can't wait I have to say though I can't wait even though we're only early on in lockdown I can't wait for us to be able to sit together face to face and crack open that bottle of red wine that's supposedly in the corner of your room which you've never showed me you've just right keep... here I'm going to flash it to oh. you right now there it is okay. the mother's milk can you, sh- can you show me the to make sure it's not open well I mean I can but I obviously don't want to open it Okay, great. All right. All right. There's trust there. There's trust there. Thank you very much. And I very much look forward to to cracking it open with you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 